And if the rest of us would like to turn in their Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 1, right at the very beginning of the Bible. And could I also ask if we could shut the door, um, just to shut out uh, street noise so that we can hear a bit better from what's being said. Um, So uh, Genesis chapter 1, and uh, we're actually just going to read the first verse, Genesis 1 verse 1, which some of you might know of. Off by heart, but we will be referring to uh, other verses in this chapter, and uh, and also um, in um, elsewhere in the scripture. So Genesis chapter one and verse one, which says this: In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, let's pray now. Oh Lord God, thank you for this opportunity that we have now for us to think about your word together. And we pray, Lord, that we will, as we consider your word, we will hear you speaking to us very clearly. And we'll get a, and either we'll be reminded of what we know already or we'll learn for the first time important things about you. And we pray that we'll be led to repent of our sins and to come to Christ for salvation and having done so to worship you and serve you the only true God as we should so bless this time now and bless the children in their Sunday school lesson as well we pray in Jesus name Amen Now, I would imagine that if you listen at all to the news or you go on internet news channels, uh, read a newspaper, I expect you will have heard this little phrase, culture wars. I doubt that anybody could not be aware Anybody who's alive today could not be aware of these culture wars that are going on at the moment. Not just in this country, but across the whole of the West, what was called the Western world. America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, and, and many other places as well. There is a monumental clash going on between what might be called woke ideology, for want of a better term. It seems to be the, the term that's, that's, that's come into currency for it, on the one hand, and what might be called traditional values or traditional outlooks on the other. And so on the, on the woke side, there will be those who say that Women can do exactly what men do and women can lead their families and tell their husbands what to do and can lead in churches and be pastors of churches and that uh, the practice of homosexuality is between consenting adults is, is completely okay, uh, that it's fine for same-sex couples to get married, uh, you can change your gender if you want to, 
you can, in fact, you can declare, not just change your gender, but you can choose from any number of a hundred genders if you want to. Or perhaps you could declare yourself as a cat or a, as a monkey or something if that takes your fancy. And uh, this view would also say that it's quite okay for babies to be killed off in the womb. And indeed, it's quite okay, increasingly, some are saying, you can kill your baby off after the baby's born. And if an adult gets to the point where he or she is getting to be a bit inconvenient, well, that person can be put to sleep as well, like your pet dog. And, but then on the other hand, there are those what you might call the traditionalist side, which, are, which is that, and on this traditionalist side, there'll be those who would say that there are God-given differences between men and women. Men and women equally made in God's image, equally valuable, but men are meant to lead in the home and the women are meant to, their wives are meant to submit. And in the church, men are meant to be pastors. Uh, and, and the women uh, should submit to, to the pastors in the church. They would say that sex is a gift given by God, but it's only for marriage. And there should be no sex outside of marriage, whether it's between a man and a woman, or a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, or, or, or humans and animals. Uh, they would say also that that uh, gender is something which has been given by God and uh, cannot be changed. Uh, that there is no difference between gender and sex, that your biological sex is your gender. You can't distinguish between the two. And they would say that uh, man is made in God's image is supremely valuable and therefore any attempt to take human life whether through abortion or euthanasia uh, should be ruled out except in the most exceptional circumstances and I'll talk about that on another occasion but so now with the exception of the idea of changing gender actually a lot of these arguments are quite old. I can remember back in my days, back in the days, you know, as people who get to my age will say, I can remember having these arguments with people at university about abortion, euthanasia, homosexuality. These things were being hotly debated when I was a student. But there's a difference that's coming, isn't there? Because whereas when, you know, there have strong, been strong opinions expressed when I was a student, but that would have been it. But now, if someone dares to say that a woman is, is an adult f female who was, who was born with, with, with you know, f female and says you can't change your gender, that person can get death threats and can be hounded out of a university, as happened to Kathleen Slack. Not a, not a Christian at all. 
She's actually, ironically, she's a lesbian and a feminist. And yet she got hounded out from, from the University of Sussex, ha- having received multiple death threats because she, she dared to, had the temerity to say openly that she thought the gender recognition bill, which was coming before Parliament at the time, um, was wrong. Um, so there's a nastiness that's coming, isn't there? Which is new in the last 10 years or so. Uh, you've got the example, you've probably heard of, of a, a, cons- a conservative, a councillor in the Conservative Party, which you think, well, they would be in favour of traditional values. But a, a councillor in the Conservative Party was suspended from the Conservative Party for tweeting. He said, these are his words, when did pride become a thing to celebrate? Because of pride, Satan fell as an archangel. Pride is not a virtue, but a sin. Those who have pride should repent of their sins and turn to Jesus Christ. He can save you. Now that's straightforward Christian morality, which Christians have believed for thousands of years. But immediately, he was suspended from the Conservative Party he was dismissed as a trustee of the ground, of Groundwork Northampton initiative, which helps disadvantaged children uh, access green spaces. The next day, he was suspended from the from an, an academy council member for we, the Weavers Academy School for 11 to 18 year olds. He was then removed as a governor of the Northampton Healthcare Foundation Trust, and also to boot banned from holding a joint police and council surgery in the local Rushton and Earthlington borough. Library Plus. Five dismissals in the space of days from respectable organizations that he was part of because he said that pride is a sin. This is where we're coming to, isn't it? And so there is this, this, this new nastiness that's, that's about. And it's not at all hard to conceive of doctors, nurses, teachers, even those working in businesses, being sacked because some male colleague announces that he is now a woman. Or some customer comes in and says, I'm a woman. Obviously a man, but he comes in saying, I'm a woman. And this customer or this colleague is the, the Christian refers to this male colleague or customer using the word him or, and refuses to use the word her. And for that one word, he'll, the, 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 the employee uh, will lose his job. It's not very hard to conceive that indeed it may well be happening already. What's going on? What's happening? Why this nastiness? Well, I think the answer is that we are encountering a clash, not just of culture, but a clash of worldview. A clash, it's a religious clash that lies behind this. Now, of course, Christianity has been denied for 
170 years. It's ever since Darwin produced his, his origin of species, people have been, of course, atheism is older than that, of course, but, but there's been a widespread denial of Christianity by the intelligentsia uh, since that time. And uh, many, many um, who, call them, who previously called themselves or who claimed to be Protestant Bible-believing Christians started to doubt the Bible, started to say, oh, the Bible's got errors in it. And so there's been this widespread denial of God for the last 170 years. But still for quite some time, the worldview which came from the outlook on, that came from Christianity still dominated our society. People still believed in truth. There was such a thing as truth. They still believed that there is such a thing as science, that something is either right or it's wrong. But what has happened into the void of the denial of God has now come in what is essentially paganism. What is paganism? Paganism is basically, at the root of paganism is, I'm the boss of my life, and I will use whatever means I can, magic, magic, superstition, ceremonies, whatever I can do, I will do whatever I can do in order to get what I want. I will use my powers to enhance my ego to give me my satisfaction, to give me my happiness. Now, of course, this is as old as, as man. What, you know, in the Bible you find the religion of Baal. What was the religion of Baal? Well, it was just that. You use magic powers to, to satisfy yourself. That's what it's all about. And, and basically, what we've got is paganism coming in. Now, there are sorts of clever terms like Postmodernism and so on, which, which, but really, postmodernism is really paganism, in 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 uh, wrapped up in clever philosophical language. And so, what we've got is we've got a clash going on between a religious clash between the biblical Christian view outlook and this new paganism that's coming in. You might call neo-paganism, this, this, this resurgence of paganism. And wherever you get a clash of religions, you get conflict. And of course, especially because paganism doesn't believe in freedom of expression. It doesn't believe in, in tolerance. Because toler the whole idea of tolerance has come from biblical Christianity. People don't realize this. But it was Christians, Protestants, who believed the Bible, who said, no, look, there must be freedom of conscience. You can't impose people's religion on them. And that's been the whole foundation of the freedom of thought that we've had in, in, in the West for the last 200 or so years. As, as the biblical view spread, even among non-Christians, but the biblical view spread, and that was the foundation for the tolerance that we have known, the freedom of speech that we've known in our society. But paganism knows nothing of that. Paganism says, if you 
stand in the way of my self-fulfillment, my self-identity. You must be got rid of. You must be obliterated. And so this is what, this is what we are seeing happen. Now, of course, um, you, you always see this when you get a clash of religions. I mean, 500 years ago, the predominant religion was Roman Catholicism in this country and indeed throughout the whole of Europe. Roman Catholicism hold, held sway. There were hardly any non-Catholics. If anybody dared to say anything that was against the Catholic religion, he was liable or she was liable to be arrested and tortured and burned alive at the stake. That was what happened 500 years ago. People forget that, but that's, that's what happened. Well, today, uh, you might not be burned alive, but you may well lose your job or come under a Twitter storm. <laughs> well, you might say, oh, that's okay, I don't mind that. Well, it's not very pleasant for people who experience these sorts of things. Death threats, it's not very nice. And so it is really important that we understand what's going on. It's really important that we understand why we believe what we believe. And that's why I I thought it'd be good to do this series in Genesis chapter 1, because Genesis chapter 1 is the foundation of the Bible. It's the foundation of our whole, it gives the foundation of the whole view of God. And the whole view, of, the biblical view of creation, the biblical view of man. And so it seemed to me, it'd be good for me to do this series. It's not going to be a typical exposition series. Normally when I'm doing, as I go through a book section by section or verse by verse and I expound each different verse. What I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be drawing out themes from Genesis chapter 1 and I'll be looking at what the, what the chapter itself says, but also referring to a few other scriptures as well um, in order to help us to see what is being taught and see how this is the teaching of the whole of scripture. It's important that we are very clear in our understanding of God. And our understanding of creation, our understanding of the natural world, our understanding of man. Because if we are not clear on these things, we are not going to be able to preach the gospel to our pagan neighbours. You know, you say to somebody, oh, Jesus can forgive you for your sins and he'll come into your heart and give you joy and peace. You say, what? If they're a pagan, what does that mean to them? But they need to have a framework whereby they understand that, that there is a living God and, and he's created this world and he's given his laws. It's quite interesting when you go through the book of Acts, you see that Paul, when he went to, when he's speaking to pagans like at Lystra and at Athens, he started way back in creation. When he's talking to the Jews in the synagogues, he didn't need to do any of that because they knew all of that. And he could just go straight on to Christ. But with the 
With the pagans, he, go, he goes back to creation. And that's what we, uh, we need to, to do. So we need to do this so that we can evangelize properly, but also we need to, do, we need to know these things because your job might be on the line before very long. Your life could be on the line on the basis of these things that we're thinking about over these next few weeks. And so you need to know what the Bible says. And you need to think, you need to know, is this just some little, little sort of small thing that I can compromise on? Oh, well, I'll just use a different pronoun. It doesn't really matter. Or is this something which actually behind this there's a massive issue which you can't you can't give way on we need to know these things and so um, that's you know for another reason why if you're a Christian you need to um, understand these things and if you're not a Christian you also need to hear because I can guarantee you that if you are not yet a, if you have not yet bowed the knee to Jesus you are worshipping a false god in one way or another, some idol in some way. Okay, so that's a bit of a longer introduction than I plan to do most weeks because I'm introducing the whole series. But I want um, this morning to think about this, just this very, this, just this little tiny phrase, these first four words in the Bible. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. And I want, you, I want you to learn with me that what these words, words tell us is that God pre-exists the natural world. In the beginning, God. God was there before anything, anything in the natural world existed. He is the eternal God. He was not made by anything or anyone else. He is self-existent. He can do as he pleases. He doesn't need anyone or anybody. He is entirely self-sufficient. And I want you to see with me how this means that though the natural world is a wonderful thing, it's not as important as a lot of people make out to be. And also, although we are wonderful, made in God's image, we are also actually not as important as a lot of people imagine. So as so we think about this, these, this, this uh, phrase, I want us to think, what does this phrase tell us about God? What does it tell us about the natural world? And what does it tell us about man? First of all, then, what it says about God? Well, it says that he, God, is uncreated. In the beginning, God. He already existed. There was never a time when he did not exist. This is the great difference between God, the God of the Bible, one of the great differences between the God of the Bible and all the other gods that people worship. 
all other gods, they have a beginning. Somebody had this idea, oh, I'll make up this, this god, Baal or Hermes or Zeus, and they, they make a statue, or these Hindu gods or the Buddha. They make up a god. But the god of the Bible is uncreated. He's not made. No one made him. You know, sometimes people say, oh, well, who made God then? As if they, oh, they've, they've come up with a great objection for Christianity. Oh, who made God then? Well, the answer is if God had been made, he wouldn't be God. <laughs> it's like saying, you know, um, how can, how can a, a square be, be round? Well, it can't be. It's impossible. You can't have a, a God who's created. No, he is the uncreated God. And allied to this, he is eternal. He is without beginning. He is without end. We read earlier from Psalm 90, verse 1. O Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or you had ever formed the earth or the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From everlasting to everlasting. No beginning, no end. 1 Chronicles 16.36 Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. He's the ever-blessed God. He's, he's always existed and he's always been blessed. Habakkuk 1.12 Are you not from from everlasting O Lord my God he is the eternal God he is the self existent God if you just look forward just over the page to chapter 2 and uh, verse 4 you have here the first use in the Bible, of the word Lord in block capitals. In our English translations, Lord in, our block, ca- in, in block capitals. And if you look at the footnote there, it says, the word Lord, when spelled with small capital letters, translates the Hebrew word for God's personal name, Yahweh, or Jehovah. So here's the first instance of God's personal name. Yahweh, Jehovah. The reason why it's translated Lord is because when the, the Jews made a translation from Hebrew to Greek, when they came across the name Yahweh in, in, in Hebrew, they used the Greek word kurios, which means Lord. And that's come into our English translations. So it's not as strange as you might think. There is a reason for that. And, and, that, that's, and the, the old, many of the quotations from the Old Testament where you've got, got uh, Yahweh, when, it's, when you look at the New Testament quotation of that, you, they use the, the, the Septuagint translation, the Greek tra- translation of the Hebrew, and it's quoted as kurios in the New Testament. So, but to distinguish that from other Hebrew words for Lord, it's in, in, in our English translations, it's Lord in block capitals. Well, what does this word Yahweh mean? Why did God choose this name Yahweh to describe himself? The main, there are a lot of other other names he uses, but why did he use this name? 
Well, we get an explanation in, 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 in Exodus chapter 3. And if you want to um, look forward, it's uh, page 55. And um, God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, and God said, Moses said to God, if I am to come to the people of Israel and say to them, the, Lord, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people. I am has sent me to you. I am. And that is the, that is, that is the, 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 the word Yahweh. That's, that's the explanation of this, of this name. God is who he says he is. He is self-existent. He is self-defining. You know, people say, oh, that's not my idea of God. Well, hang on a minute. Who are you to say what God is like? God is what he says he is. He is who he has revealed himself to be. He's decided what he's going to be like. And then clearly also, another thing about God, which, is, which as we will see as we go through this chapter, is that uh, this God, Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of the Bible, is the almighty God. He can do exactly what he pleases. And that comes out, as we'll see in future weeks, in the way he brings the whole of creation into being, simply by his voice of command. He just says and it happens. Jeremiah later says, chapter 32, Our Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power. And your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. This God who made the whole heavens and the earth, nothing's too hard for him. And then another thing which is very important for us to understand is that God does not need anybody or anything. What do you think God was doing before he created the world? Do you think God was bored? Do you think he was lonely? Do you think that's why he made the world? Oh, a hmm, bit like, you know, somebody, you know, somebody, you know, parents, you know, the, the nest is empty, they, they miss the kids, so they buy a pet dog. Is that, is that how God is? Oh, I feel a bit lonely in this universe all by myself. I, I need some people around to, to give me a bit of company. Was that, was that, did God have any problems? Of course not. And, oh, I better make some people to help me out because I can't quite manage to make, make the world or I can't manage to organise the world. So I better make some people and make a universe to, to sort of help me, help me with, with my life because I'm a bit, I'm a bit hamstrung the way I, do you really think so? Of course not. God was entirely self-sufficient, entirely satisfied, entirely blessed. 
He could have quite happily continued for millions upon millions upon millions of years without any creation at all. He'd been fine. Uh, Paul says, that I mentioned how Paul spoke to, when he spoke to pagans, um, he, he went back to creation. Now one example I mentioned is Athens, and if you, if you want to know where that is, it's Acts 17 and verse 24. Page, and if you want the reference, it's page, page 1101. And... Uh, Paul says to the Athenians, these pagans, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. God doesn't need anything. He's not, you know, deficient in some sort of way. You know, sometimes people think, oh, I did God a favor by turning up at church. As if God needed you to come to church because somehow... You know, oh, poor old God, no. Sometimes we who are Christians, we can think, oh, you know, God must be grateful to me because I preached the gospel to somebody and they got converted. As if God needed you. No, he chooses to use us. He doesn't need us. He can do, you know, Abraham said, didn't he, God can make children, sorry, John the Baptist said, don't you know that God can make children of himself out of these stones if he wants to? He doesn't need you. Children, what are they? Children of Abraham for himself out, out of these stones. No, God is entirely self-sufficient. doesn't need anybody or anything else. And then also another thing which we see in this chapter which comes out is God is Trinity. Three persons. Now, it's obviously it's not fully developed here. But you've got verse 2. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. You've got verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And then he says, what does it say? Let us. Sorry, it's later on. It? Let us make man. Verse 26. Let us make man in our image. The pruel. And of course, if you know your Bible, you will in the beginning, you'll immediately recognize, of course, an echo of John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, with God the Father. And the Word was God. Clearly, John is very deliberately saying, look, the Word, who we know from verse 14, must be Christ, because it says he, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That Word was there with the Father at the beginning. As much God as the Father is God. God is Trinity. 
And this sheds a whole new light, of course, a whole light on the phrase in 1 John, God is love. How can God be love? God is eternally love. But how can God be love when there's apparently nothing to love? Well, because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were loving each other from all of eternity. Jesus said, John 17, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. There is this love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world in this relationship between them. So, there's the first thing then. What it says about God. God is this great, eternal, all-sufficient Trinity God. Now, let's give some application to us. What, how should this affect us? Well, it shows us that we should worship him. He is worthy of our worship. We should turn from worshipping false gods, idols, repent of that sin of idolatry and worship the eternal God. There's an interesting thing that, that Paul says in Romans chapter 5. Because he, in Romans chapter 5, he's talking about the, how, as Christians, we rejoice in our hope, we rejoice in our sufferings, we rejoice in, our, in, the, in, the, in the salvation that we have in Christ, and so on and so forth. And then he says, uh, verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't just rejoice in being saved. We don't just rejoice in being loved. We don't just rejoice in, in our salvation. Of course we do. We rejoice in our hope. Of course. But we rejoice in God. God himself is an object of delight and rejoicing. Now, I have to say I'm quite challenged by that. Personally, I find it very easy to say, thank you, Lord, for dying for my sins. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for loving me. It's all to do with me, isn't it? But how much do I actually just rejoice in God for who God is himself, in himself? His majesty, his eternity, his glory. I think I need to do that more. Maybe you do as well. Remember Psalm 37. Delight yourself in the Lord, in Jehovah, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Do you do that? Do I do that? Delight in God. Well, there's the first thing then, what it says about God. What it says about the, the universe. I'm not going to be so long on this, so just more brief on the next two points. But what does it say about the universe? Well, you see, if God is the eternal God, what is the universe? The universe, the natural world, is temporary. There's a beginning and there's an end. 
What did Jesus say? Heaven and earth may pass away, but my words remain forever. There was a beginning to the natural world, there's going to be an end to it. What does that make the natural world? It makes it much less than God. And this is where the whole evolution, I've been talking in future weeks about evolution and everything else, but this is where the whole evolution thing falls down because it turns the creation, it makes the natural world into something which is everlasting, without beginning and without end. It turns the natural world into God. But the scripture very clearly says that everything that exists had a start, when God created it, and it's going to be wrapped up. There's going to be new heavens and new earth, yes, which will be everlasting. But this world as we know it is going to come to an end. And so the creation is entirely contingent, entirely dependent upon God. It's dependent upon God for its very existence. And it's also dependent upon God for its continuation. In Colossians chapter 1, we read about Christ. Uh, verse 15. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. That means angels as well whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Everything is sustained by Christ. If for one split second the Lord was to stop sustaining the whole universe, it would all disappear. It's all upheld by him. It's all dependent upon him. Now, a lot of people in our current age are affected by what is effectively, are influenced by the idea of what's called pantheism. So the idea of pantheism is that God and the natural world are one and the same. See, this is why a pantheist will hug a tree. Because the tree is sacred. Because it's part of God. A pantheist won't even kill a fly. This is why... why um, Certain animals are treated as sacred in, 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 in Hindu culture. And this pantheism has come into the West. Oh, we've got to save the world. We've got to save the earth. Because the earth is sacred. It's something wonderful. It's something holy. No. The earth, the natural world, is created by God. It's got its purpose. It's, we should look after it. But it's not holy. It's not, it's, not, it's not God. It's different from God. And so we can enjoy the natural world. 
We can give thanks for the natural world, but we should not worship the natural world. See, what are, what are the druids doing down at Stonehenge as, when, when there's the summer solstice? Well, they're worshipping the sun, aren't they? But actually, this is, if you look at it, if, you, if, if the plain, what the Bible says about it, is it's, it's idolatry. That's what it is. It's worshipping something created rather than the creator. Romans 1, um, verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature the thing created rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I wonder, are you an idolater? You say, I'm not an idolater. I don't, I've got no statues in my house. But what about your sport? What about your phone? What about drink? Drugs, sex. What about your ego? What about your education? What about your family? What about your home? Have these things become an idol for you? We can and should, of course, look after our homes and we can find satisfaction in doing some decorating, make the home look nice. That's, that's, we can be thankful for that. But the love should be of the Lord our God. We should turn from our idolatry and worship him alone. That is, of course, the summary of the law, isn't it? We should love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Well, what does it tell us about us? Well, we're thinking a bit more about man, God willing, in future week. We think about man as made in the image of God and the dignity of man. But what we need to understand is that by contrast with God, we, you and I, we are but dust. We, God is the potter. We are the clay. He decides what happens in our lives. You see, this, once you get rid of the idea of God, you forget the, alter, the almighty God. Who becomes God? You do. Your little ego becomes God. Don't you know who I am? We strut around as if we're something really important. I've got the right to do this. I've got the right to do that. I'm the boss of my life. I can choose my identity. I can choose who I'm going to have sex with. I can do what I like because I'm, I'm God, you know. Effectively, you're saying. And the Bible says, no, you're not. God is God. Yes. In his great kindness, he's given you astonishing status as made in his image. And we'll think about that more in a future week. But never forget that you are not eternal. 
You come today and you're gone tomorrow. God is the eternal God. We have this word, don't we? So-and-so is entitled. There's an awful lot of entitled people in this world. And you and I probably attempted to feel a bit entitled ourselves. In fact, when you feel sorry for yourself, when you say to yourself, God has not treated me very fairly, what are you really saying? What am I saying when I slip into that? Doesn't God know who I am? I deserve a better deal than this. Well, hang on a minute, Henry. Who are you? As, 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 as uh, Paul says in Romans, you know, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Who are you? Shall the potter say, shall the clay say to the potter, why did you make me like this? How can we answer back to God? How can we tell God he's not done a very good job of organizing the universe? That's what God had to say to Job, wasn't it? Were you there when I made the world? Do you know these things? Of course we don't. And so, seeing the greatness of God should put us in our place. Yes, we are, by his kindness, we're made in his image. And yes, by his grace, we're adopted as his children and raised up and seated with Christ in heavenly places. Wonderful! That's all by his grace. But in and of ourselves, we are nobodies. And we need to remember that. So we should repent of our pride. We should come to God as bankrupt sinners. And having been saved, we should walk before him in humility. Trusting that he knows the best for us. Well, I hope that's helpful uh, for you and I'm hoping, God willing, um, next week to speak about how the earth, how the natural world was brought into being by God's command. Well, let's, um, let's uh, now uh, sing our hymn which picks up on this idea of, of God being the potter and us being the clay. In the songbook number 89, have thine own way, Lord. Number 89.